Genesis chapter 27, verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him, yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you. And all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be. And away from the dew of heaven and on high, by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But you, when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau her older son were told to Rebekah, so she sent and called Jacob her younger son and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, free, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him, then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from, one, from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. And thus, Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the 
Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's, and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. When we set out to plant a church, we started that process by going through an assessment. And in that assessment, they asked us all sorts of, they did all sorts of different things, asked us all sorts of different stuff. And one of the things they asked us was a lot of questions. Uh, We met with a counselor and they asked us a lot of questions about, uh, you know, me particularly about uh, my family of origin, about things that had happened in my life. And I decided at an early stage in that process, I said, you know, if we're supposed to plant a church and these people, you know, have got experience working with plant, church planters and, you know, what kinds of things people, you know, should be good for church planters and what shouldn't and whatever, I'm just going to trust this process that God's put me in. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to be as honest as possible. I'm not going to hold anything back. This has always been my philosophy with, with a, a job interview, right? Just be completely honest because if you present yourself as something other than yourself, both you and the, and the employer are going to be disappointed later on, right? Or you're going to continue to be something you're not, which you can't keep up. And so I've always had that philosophy from, from, from early on. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to be as honest as possible. And if they decide, you know what, you're messed up, dude. You shouldn't plant a church. Then I'm going to take that as, you know, I guess I shouldn't. Um, and so I, I, I shared, you know, uh, things that happened in my family and church, uh, different experiences that I've had. And I remember that at the end of the assessment, I sat down with this guy who was kind of our, our, our main person assigned to us, and he, and he had our little, like this folder with all this information about us, right? And he looked across the table, and uh, I can't remember exactly the words he used, but, but more or less, what, what he looked at me in the eyes and he, and he said, uh, Cody, you've, you've been through a lot of different things in your life? Well, I guess. I mean, I've had a few things happen. I don't a lot of people have gone through a lot of things in their life. And he goes, no, no, I'm actually quite surprised that you're a pastor. I'm quite surprised, in fact, that you're just not a complete mess based on the things that have happened in your life and the other situations that I've seen. That being said, he said, green light go. So we planted a church. But my point being this, all of us have experienced some pretty traumatic things in our life. We've had people do things to us that are sinful or hurtful, painful, 
I've been a pastor long enough to know that the things that I've experienced uh, pale in comparison to the things that many people have experienced. And yet, I can tell you that the things that I've experienced even decades ago have impacted me as the pastor proclaimed. There are things that I thought were buried in the past that have been resurrected through situations in the last three and a half years. And I've had to deal with those things. And so, as we look at this story, as we kind of continue on from part one last week, we are going to see the effects of the sinful actions of a family against one another. And I know in this room that all of you have experienced the sinful actions of people in your own family or in the family of God, for that matter, against you. Or you've experienced traumatic things that maybe not someone didn't intentionally do, but it just happened, death and loss of loved ones. Effects of the sin on the world in general that have created in you traumatic experiences that continue to affect you to this day. Last week, we started with this section that began with Esau making some poor marriage choices, if you remember. And it continued with about everyone in the family acting like a fool, right? And we saw in that, that even though our earthly pursuits can blur our eternal vision or the eternal picture that God has given us, yet our earthly pursuits can't stop God's eternal purposes. And that's hopeful. That's hopeful. And although that is true, it's also true that it's not consequence-free. That even though it doesn't stop God's eternal purposes, there are still consequences when in our blindness we sin against one another. This morning we're going to see that though God's eternal purposes won't be stopped, our earthly pursuits can create earthly problems. They can create earthly problems. And that's probably an understatement of a phrase. Uh, This morning... The message is going to be heavy, I think. And you may, as you hear, as I talk, you may be reminded of things that have happened in your own life that have been quite traumatic. I want you to understand that my intention this morning is not to be light with those, is not to... um, Uh, pretend that those aren't really, really difficult things. In fact, I hope that you hear the opposite. And yet my intent also is to call you to the one who knew all those things before they happened. To the one who is sovereign over all of those things and to the one whose eternal purposes can't be stopped.
And so, with that, I want to look at this passage, and I want to start here. I want to start with the statement, sin creates trauma. We need to understand that sin is the thing that creates trauma. And I use the word trauma generally because it's a very popular word uh, today, but I use it to encompass that psychological distress that we experience emotionally, mentally, whatever, due to the things that people have done to us or the things that we have done ourselves. And so in verses 30 through 40, we read perhaps the most emotionally raw and gripping of any passage in all of the book of Genesis, and it has to be towards the top of the list, even in the whole Bible. You hear, in comparison to the very brief descriptions and very brief dialogue we get in other places in Genesis, here, Moses zooms in and he gives us such gripping emotional language, such specificity to the words that are spoken. Isaac trembles violently in verse 33 at the realization of what has happened. Esau cries out with exceedingly great and bitter cry in verse 34. And in verse 38, Esau lifts up his voice and weeps, I'm quite sure. Because some of you all can think of moments where you have lifted up your voice and wept because of what is happening or has happened to you or to those that you love. Decisions that you've made or decisions that others have made. And there's this unique detail in the dialogue. It says, bless me, even me also, O my father. Is he not rightly named Jacob? Behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Behold, I have made him Lord over you. What can I do for you, my son? Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also. You can hear the despair in the voice. It grips you as you read the words. And if we allow ourselves to go there. And I can understand. I can understand if you don't want to allow yourself to go there, because I often don't want to allow myself to go there. The times in which we've had great expectations that have given way to greater disappointments, the times in which we have had high hopes that have become desperate despair, the times when the knife of betrayal or rejection or abandonment have cut us so deep, so very deep. We can feel, as in Isaac and Jacob's dialogue here, or Isaac and Esau's dialogue here, the fear, the anxiety, the desperation, the anger, the disorientation that sin can create. They don't even know what to do. This is what sin does. It doesn't matter, listen, it doesn't matter if you have a, or think a particular sin isn't actually all that bad. 
or even if you think it might produce good results, this is what sin does every time. That's what sin does. If the Bible calls it sin, then it always destroys, it always distorts, it always creates distress. It is chaos. And we're tempted when we are in Esau's place to do exactly what Esau does. What does he do? It's my brother's fault. It's my brother Jacob's fault. And we're tempted even as we read this to think that Jacob, that Jacob, poor Esau, But I want to remind you that every single person in this family has brought sin into this situation. That every single person in this family is guilty. And in fact, we might say that Isaac and Esau's were the worst. And Jacob deceived, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to take anything away from that. What Esau says in verse 36 is true. Cheated here is a play on words with Jacob's name. When he was born, he was grabbing Esau's heel, you remember, but more broadly, that term, that that heel grabber term means to trip up. And so Esau says that Jacob's deception has tripped me up, and that's true. Rebecca's deceived and manipulated. The vigor she once had, you remember? The vigor she once had when Abraham's servant came to the well and she waters, uh, gives him water and she waters all of his camels and she's running back and forth to the well. That same vigor is now turned through sin and distorted to manipulate her husband in the worst possible way, to deceive him. Isaac was deceived, but he was deceived in part because he trusted himself and his senses rather than seeking God as he ought to have. By weight of the position that God had put him in as father to this family, as heir to the blessings of God, his failure carries more responsibility. Listen, when God puts you in bigger positions... Your sin is worse. If I sin, it has more consequences, same sin, as if you sin. Because God has put me in this position as an elder in this church. And that is a weight that I have to carry as a pastor and as an elder. Because it affects more people. It does more damage. Fathers, husbands, That's you as well for your family. Esau. He started it all, didn't he? Married two Canaanite women. Despised the promises of God, the commands of God. Long has rejected any kind of faith in the God of his grandfather Abraham. And listen, this means a few things for us. If sin causes trauma, it means a few things. First, it means that trauma is a real issue. And I want you to understand this. Trauma is a real issue. Emotional pain is something real that we have to deal with in our lives. It's a factor that we have to consider as we interact with one another. It 
can be helpful to understand how the pain that we experience affects us. The places in which the pain of, pains of our past are going to creep back in and are going to tempt us to sin in similar ways. There are things that happen in church life for me that because of pain in my past, in my family of origin, I am tempted to respond in particular ways. And in fact, in just a couple years ago, whatever it was, a year and a half or so ago, I had to go get counseling to work through some of those things that were coming back up. I didn't know, what is this? Where is this from? I thought this was done. And so I went to Mill Creek's Counseling Center and worked through that and walked through that. Here's how God would want you to respond. Let's talk about what the Bible says about that. Because if I respond according to the things in my past, according to the trauma that I feel, there's very real pain. But if I bring that into today, I all of a sudden do damage to a lot more people. Again, because of the role that I have. If we're to love one another well, then we ought to consider the emotions of the other person as well, the things that they struggle with as well as we can. I mean, sometimes you don't know. Sometimes, and I'll, listen, I will tell you this is true. Oh, my goodness. As a pastor, there are times when I'll say something that I think is just a benign statement. It's just, I've said it 10 times to 10 different people and nothing, and then someone goes... Boom. And I'm like, what just happened? Did I say the words I thought I said? And, and as you work through that, you realize, oh, there's this thing from your past or that's happened to you. And when I say those words for you, that tempts you to respond in a particular way. Now, that doesn't justify your response, and yet, and yet, does call me to be patient in love and long-suffering with that person because of that. Uh, Romans 15 says this, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We, are, we who are able ought to take extra care with those who are in this kind of distress. Inasmuch as we can do so without sinning ourselves, taking it on ourselves willingly, sacrificing for the sake of another person. And what's the purpose for that, does it say there in Romans 15? To build them up. Not to leave them where they are, but to build them up. That they might be encouraged. That they might endure. That we might live in harmony with one another, that there might be unity.
So trauma is real. But the second thing I want you to realize is this. Trauma is not the root issue. And here's where I think the world gets it wrong. Very, very tragically wrong. Trauma is not the root issue. We often, what is often communicated is the person with the most trauma, the person who is the most emotionally hurt, as if we can quantify that in any meaningful sense, right? They have to always be the one who's wronged. You must have wronged me because clearly I'm more emotionally hurt here. But we have a different standard. The Bible tells us what's wrong and what's right. God's Word tells us. And as Christians, we believe that the root problem is always sin. Romans 8 tells us that the whole creation groans under sin. Do you get that? All of creation suffers from the trauma of yours and my sin. It's not, that the, it's not that something bad out there happened and then it creates some sort of trauma in us and then we're forced to sin because of that. No, our sin in us, acted out, creates trauma even on all of creation. But the world, the world doesn't want to believe in sin. It wants to put the problem somewhere outside of self. And even if the world puts the problem on another person, the only reason that that person had a problem was because of some factor outside of them. So the problem then, they say, is not with them, it's a trauma problem. And so the immense emotional weight of trauma, which is true and real, but it begins to make us think that these little sinful responses, by comparison, ought not to be considered a big deal. And so we say things to one another like this. We say, well, how could I say that's wrong when they've gone through fill in the blank? Or we say things like, it's been so hard for them, I can understand if they fill in the blank sinful thing. Or we say, oh, that's not the real them. That's just because of what they've been through. No, my friends, that's the real them. You and I are sinners. And there's no clause in the Bible that says, because of the things you've been through in your past, you get a free pass on sin. Would we give Christ a free pass? If he who has experienced more trauma than you or I have ever experienced hung on the cross and in his very last moments, cried out something sinful, what would happen to the atonement? What would happen to us? Do we really believe that our trauma is so significant that it justifies crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ again. Listen, even if motivated by care, these responses, they're just devoid of the gospel. They are not only devoid of the gospel, they are actually damaging to the people 
They're damaging to the people who have experienced such trauma. They don't help them. They hurt them, and they hurt others as well. Scripture is clear. Sin comes from within us, not from without. Trauma is not the cause of sin, and trauma is not a justification for sin. In fact, if we allow it to be so, what happens is we, the trauma that we hate so much that we've experienced, we justify creating that in someone else. That's what happens. You say, oh, that sin is not that big of a deal because of what they've been through. Well, that sin is then creating the same kind of trauma in someone else. Satan. Satan's sitting there going, yeah. Steal, kill, and destroy. This, is, this kind of emotional, mental pain can help us to identify that there, there is some kind of thing happening when you experience that. And you know what that's like when you have something happen and all of a sudden you have this, this visceral response to it that you even, if you have a second to think about it, you go, why am I feeling this way all of a sudden? This thing shouldn't warrant this feeling. I don't, maybe it's just me that has these moments. My family can attest to this, Right? That feeling of sh- that sar- sharp sensation of pain, and it tells us that something is wrong. And if we're not careful, we will always identify the other person as being the one who's done something wrong, right? Well, I feel this pain all of a sudden, so you must be wrong. But, but are they? Because there's more to the situation, right? You see, that pain, it doesn't, it does, does a very good job of identifying that something is wrong, but it doesn't do a very good job of telling us what actually is wrong and why. And consider, consider that any situation where we feel this kind of immense distress all of a sudden, when we, as the word goes, are triggered, that that could be our own present sin that causes it. That could be present sin against us. It could be our past unresolved sin, our past unresolved sin, or it could be past unresolved sin against us, Right? And so if I feel a burning sensation, it could be that I've touched a hot stove or that someone has touched me with the hot pot. Or it could be that someone is just touching unknowingly and in no, with no malintent or with no malaction, a spot that's been burned previously. And if you have a nice sunburn, if you've already gotten one this summer, then you know what that's like, right? Your kid comes up to hug you your kid comes up, oh, I'm going to rub dad's back. I'm going to do a nice for him. And it's like, ah, why are you doing that? And they're like, I was trying to help. <laughs> exactly. Silas likes to do that. If I respond to that last person as if they're burning me, even though they're not, then I end up creating I end up burning them. That's what I end up doing. So how we respond matters. 
Unfortunately for this family, for Isaac's family, they don't respond very well. They are quite dysfunctional. And their sinful responses actually perpetuate the problems. But we don't have to repeat their mistakes, guys. Listen, I want you to know, uh, you grew up in a situation maybe that was traumatic, where there were, that was dysfunctional. I want you to know, I know from experience, you don't have to repeat that. Christ gives us a different way. He gives us the strength to do things differently. He gives us the motivation to do things differently. You don't have to repeat it. So let's, let's, let's uh, consider some ways to respond to trauma. I'm calling this revenge, run, or repentance. Let's compare a few responses in our text. And look, this is straightforward. Esau hates Jacob because of what's happened. No doubt you have had someone do something to you that was so hurtful, that created so much distress in you, that you are tempted to hate them, and perhaps even you have hated them. Perhaps you hate them right now today. Maybe you aren't intending to kill them, but if you could get away with it, you kill them with your words and with your mind whenever you think about it. And Esau decides after his dad dies, my dad's going to die soon, and when he dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. I'm going to get revenge. And I want you to see the logical connection between belief and application. And if Esau had seen that God was sovereign as Abraham, his grandfather, saw God, then he would have humbly accepted his new position. If Esau saw God as judge, as Abraham saw God as judge, then he would have sought repentance for his own sin, whether or not Jacob ever repented of his. If Esau had seen God as the sovereign judge, then he... He wouldn't need to take justice in his own hands because he would know that God would take care of it. Rebecca catches wind of the plan. And what's her advice for Jacob? Run, flee, get out of here. Come, come up with an excuse. That, or I'll give you the excuse. Just, it's a good one too because you really did need to go find a wife from, from Rebecca's family, right? So, so go, get out of here. And like Esau, Jacob doesn't trust God. He doesn't seek repentance. He has this window of opportunity while his dad is still alive to try to make things right with his brother before his brother turns to uh, uh, murderous intentions. But he doesn't. His sinful solution, it's not murdering the other, but it's not right either. And I want to pause here for a second. I want to give a little qualification. I don't want you to hear me wrong. There are situations, traumatic situations, where people are sinning against someone else that warrant a certain kind of removal from the situation. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm painting with broad strokes in this story, but I do want to say that there are situations that warrant that. Even then, when there is some kind of physical separation that is necessary, I, the Bible still calls us to make every attempt to seek repentance and reconciliation, to seek unity before an utter separation occurs. But Jacob doesn't take that opportunity. 
And listen, the vast majority of Christians that I have heard of say something like, well, I'm, I'm just a peacemaker. I just want to keep the peace. I won't make a big deal out of that. I just want to keep the peace. They're deceiving themselves. Like I could, I, uh, maybe, this is, maybe this is arrogant of me. Forgive me if it is. I think I've talked with enough people. I've seen enough stuff that 99% of people who say I'm a peacemaker are lying to themselves. They are not peacemakers. They are conflict avoiders. And there's a massive difference. They, they, don't have, they don't have good motives for the other people. They are selfish. They don't want to have to deal with the problem. They think if you just go away for a while, it'll go away. Oh, Rebecca says to Jacob, just, just go away. And, and, and when his fury subsides, I'll call for you and I'll get you. We'll see there's a problem with that. And so we do this physically. If we don't do this physically, we don't actually just like physically remove ourselves, then we do it emotionally, right? We don't allow risky people to occupy too much space in our hearts. We use humor to divert attention away from where we've been hurt before. We refuse to have any conversations. We refuse to have the conversations, I should say, that we should because it probably won't work anyways and it's just going to become more of a headache. And those are just the excuses that I use on a regular basis. No peace is made here. They're just dodging conflict in hopes that it goes away, but it never goes away. In fact, Jacob will be away from his father's house for 20 years. The message will never come from his mom. His mom dies before Esau's fury subsides. And she never sees her son again. But in all of it, God creates purposeful results. And this is, this is what I want you to hear. The things that you've gone through, the things that I've gone through, God has used them to shape me into the person I am today, and he continues to use them to not only sanctify me, but as a tool to help sanctify other people. See, although this family is a complete train wreck right now, and it is a train wreck, am I right? This is God's family. This is God's chosen people. And even though His people aren't faithful to God and their actions, God must be faithful to Himself and to the covenant He made. Thus, what we see in chapter 28, verses 1 through 5, is God using this catastrophic failure of a situation to bring about at least two things. First, Isaac finally does something to ensure Jacob has a wife, the kind of wife he ought to have. All these years, he's about on his deathbed, and, and he has failed his son in one of his duties as a father, and it finally pushes him to do so in order that a godly line can continue. And we'll see in coming weeks how God uses that. Second is this, Isaac passes Jacob the fullness of the blessings of Abraham. For the first time, Isaac passes to him the fullness of the, the blessings that 
God gave to Abraham, that Abraham passed on to Isaac. Isaac now passes on finally to Jacob. But the effects of their sin, they don't magically disappear. As I said, Rebecca will never be able to send to bring Jacob back because she will die. And her, her plan to not lose her son results in her never seeing her son anyways. And since she's dead, no one ever comes to get Jacob. I want you to see this as we, tr- as we continue in this story over the next few weeks. I want you to see this. What we're going to see is that the night that Jacob leaves, we'll talk about this next week, the night he leaves, he has a conversion experience. And for the first time, he shares the faith of Abraham. And so God uses this trauma to push Jacob to push this this homebody of a son who doesn't ever want to get outside of his father's house to push him out and bring, when he's all alone in the desert by himself with nothing to go, but you have me, I'm God. So he brings Jacob to himself. Then for 20 years, what we'll see is God uses the effects of this trauma on Jacob and Jacob's fear to return to actually bring Jacob to repentance for his specific sins that happened here. And so God is using, can use, God wants to use the difficult things you've experienced to save and to sanctify you. It's trials that refine our faith. And we have to ask ourselves, am I running from the trauma physically, emotionally, even medicinally? Am I inflicting trauma on someone else by my actions? If you can't hurt the person that, you, that hurt you, you end up hurting someone else. Or am I desiring God to use that trauma for His eternal purposes in my life? And I want you to understand. I want you to understand that we're not promised healing from trauma. And that's another lie that we that the church has started to kind of absorb from the world. I challenge you, I challenge you to go through Scripture and find where God says that you are promised, follow me and I will heal you from the trauma in this world. That is not God's primary goal. God's primary goal is not for you to be happy or healthy or healed. Christ promises to remove sin from you not your distress. Oftentimes, as it's been my experience, that as Christ does this work, it's like a surgery that removes the shrapnel of past trauma. As He begins to remove our sin, He removes those extra bits and pieces of metal and shards that have that have been troubling us and all these wounds that we have. And, and faith in his gospel acts like a balm that heals those wounds. But it's so important to remember that being healed is not the goal of faith. Rather, being holy is. And when we are holy, then as we become holy, we become primed for true healing. But as long as we continue in our sin, for every wound we think we've stitched up, we create three others, in ourselves or in someone else. 
One, if healing is the priority, we may use the world's wisdom to do what we think will be healing without regard for God's word and him, and thus sin in our attempts to try to bring about healing. But if we concern ourselves with pursuing Christ, then healing will come when and how God in his sovereign wisdom decides it ought to come. And sometimes it comes quickly, and sometimes it takes a long time because there are other things that are just more important from God's perspective. Two, if you don't work on your sin, since sin is the root problem, as I said, there can't be any real or lasting healing for you, and you will continue to hurt others. And so there won't be healing for others as well. Look at these last few verses, verses 6 through 9. Remember, the whole section opened up with Esau marrying these two Canaanite women. And then we have here at the end uh, Esau um, realizing for the first time, and I don't know how he doesn't realize, maybe this is just an utter failure on his father's part. Maybe he is just dense as wood. I don't know. But he finally realizes, he hears, oh, dad doesn't like these Canaanite women. That's a problem. And so what does he do? He takes another wife, an Ishmaelite, in a desperate attempt to heal his relationship with his dad and gain his approval. And you might think, well, at least Esau's, he's changed somewhat, you know, from marrying whoever he wants to attempting to marry, at least attempting, trying to marry someone his dad approves of. Even that's not, doesn't quite get it right. And while Esau's method may have changed Esau's still the same. He wants to do this. He wants to do things his way rather than his father's. He wants to gain his father's approval when it has to be given, not gained. And this is what we do with our Heavenly Father. We think, I need to get myself fixed up and healed so God can use me. So I can be approved by him. And this still seems like it could work without regard for whether that's actually what the father really wants, without regard for the fact that our father is what we really actually need. And then we look for his approval via whether or not we got the healing that we thought we ought to have gotten. And we are disappointed when it doesn't come. But the Father isn't looking for Esau's. Church, God's not looking for Esau's. Trying to make themselves good enough. What we need is an anti-Esau, right? We need a not-Esau. We need a firstborn son who was blessed beyond all, yet made himself a servant, taking on human flesh, in order that we might be brought in as sons to glory. What we need is a firstborn son who never sinned, never wronged anyone, nor had any reason to repent, and yet took on himself the sins of all of his brothers. What we need is a firstborn son who experienced trauma beyond comparison in the garden as he prayed, when he was arrested, when he was mocked and spat on by soldiers, and when his hands and his feet were nailed to a cross. And yet he trusted God. We need a not Esau. 
If sin is the issue, the real issue and not trauma, then the solution, friends, is the gospel, that God loves and saves rebel sinners, hurt, broken, messed up rebel sinners like you and me through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And with all our junk and with all our mess and with all of our warts, he can heal us and he can make us holy and he can use us. He has a purpose for us. The only solution is not taking justice in our own hands or manipulating or deceiving or anything else that we can do in our own efforts. The only solution is the mercy of God on his people through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in this story. We need a firstborn son who who married exactly who his father wanted him to marry, a messed up, trauma-ridden, trauma-creating bride we call the church. Promises to sanctify her, not to heal her. And yet, he will, he will heal her. One day, God takes the trauma away. And we see that in Revelation 21, and it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's us, church. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's what God's word says. But let us get the order right. This is the hope we have in Christ, that though our families of origin may be a mess, though our households right now, frankly, have got issues, that the household of God, this church, is still stained with sin today, and yet God promised to be purposeful to use this mess to call new people to himself and to clean us up in the process. And one day, that family will be presented to Christ and we will be holy and thus healed and happy forevermore. Let me pray.